Indeed, it is special to gather and to worship Jesus together as we celebrate the wonder of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. It was only a year ago that I was preaching an Easter message to an empty auditorium, and how wonderful it is to be here with all of you as we get to celebrate Jesus together in person. It truly is, makes it very sweet this year to be able to be together. This morning we will be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, slides is 16, but it's 15, so blame that on me or somebody else, but it is 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be looking at the first 20 verses of that chapter this morning. You know, as a society, we are on a relentless pursuit of more, a relentless pursuit of more. We want more stuff, and so we need more money to get more stuff. We want more attention from others. We want more likes, more uh, comments on our social media posts. We want more escape from our boring and everyday lives. And so we fill our time with more entertainment, more movies, more shows, more video games. We want more pleasure. We spend billions of dollars on pornography and swiping through profile after profile of our next sexual partner. But in it all, what we're wanting is more autonomy. What we're wanting is to be able to decide for our, ourselves how we're going to rule our lives. We believe that we will be the most happy if we can simply follow our heart's desires and fill it to the nth degree. And yet ironically, in the last several decades, as wealth per household has gone up, and as we spend more and we gather more and more, the rates of depression and suicide continue to go up. It seems that even though we have more, we're not more happy. We're more depressed than we've ever been. We are using antidepressants more than we ever have. And so the more we've accumulated isn't translating into greater satisfaction in life. In fact, life can actually be fairly disappointing. And this last year has given us some stark reminders, has it not? That even if we can get all that we want, death still threatens to take it all away. All of our accomplishments will one day fade. All of our possessions will be ripped out of our hands. All of our activities will one day cease. All of our pleasures will one day expire. And we'll all be faced with the stark reality that we are not masters of our own destiny and captains of our fate. You see, ever since the, our birth date, we each have had a death date as well. Of course, we don't like to think about that, but it's true. In the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament reminds us that death reveals the vanity of life, the vainness of life. You see, everyone's in the same bucket because everybody will one day pass from this life. The rich and the poor, the famous and the unknown, the pretty and the plain, the powerful and the weak all die empty-handed and will soon be forgotten. And therefore, life can seem pointless and vain. Of course, we tend to think that death is a long way off, right? 
It's somewhere there in the future, and we don't want to think about it today. But we have this thing called a pandemic that has hit our world in the last year, and it's reminded everyone the day of our death may be sooner than we realize. And so our world has spent untold time and resources developing vaccines and other tools for battling this virus. And we praise God in his providence that has given us the ability and scientific discoveries to enable such things to take place. These medical advances are wonderful, and every life that is saved we are thankful for. And yet, for a life saved today, it is still going to die at some point. You see, we are faced with the shortness of life and the inevitability of death. And so people are hungry for hope. In the face of such a a hard reality and such a hard dead end to life, what is the purpose of living? What's the purpose of our days? How do we have hope in the face of an existence that will crash and burn? Because you see, all the things we give our time and our money and our passions to can never save us from death. They may distract us from the reality of it, but they can't save us from it. They cannot change the fact that we will die, that our stuff will go to someone else, and that we will be forgotten within a few generations. So where do we find hope in such a depressing world? Well, as we've been saying this morning, our hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, we are stuck in this depressing, pointless life. If there is no future life, if there is no resurrection unto life, then every person simply gets plowed over by death and time moves on. Folks, on this resurrection day, we need to be reminded of why the resurrection is so central to the Christian faith. But more than that, we need to be reminded why it is so needed for all of humanity. The resurrection is not just a cherished truth that Christians hold on to, but it's a truth that every single person on this planet needs to know because it changes everything. We need to be reminded why the resurrection is the hinge of our hope. Everything depends upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, we have no hope. And the greatest defense and reminder of the significance of the resurrection is found in 1 Corinthians 15, as Steve reminded us earlier. And it's here in 1 Corinthians that Paul is writing a letter, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a group of Christians, a church there in Corinth, a port city in Greece. It was a place where a lot of international travel and trade intersected there in Corinth and where Greek philosophy was well entrenched. And therefore, when the Christian gospel broke into that world and into that city, it faced stiff opposition. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul began to address the issue of the resurrection as it was tied to the gospel. And so, let's see how he develops this, and we'll see this in the first part of the chapter this morning, in verses 1 through 20. Follow along as I read. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, 
if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is not true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, if, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In verses 1 and 2, Paul begins to describe this gospel. Notice he sees how the resurrection is tied to the gospel. In verses 1 and 2, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The word gospel simply meaning the good news. Not just any kind of news, but good news. And he says, with this gospel, there were four actions that he describes in verses 1 and 2. One taken by Paul and three taken by the Corinthians. He says, first, I preached it to you. He preached the gospel. Secondly, the believers received the gospel. Thirdly, he says that the believers stand in the gospel. And fourthly, he says the believers are being saved by the gospel. This is not just a ticket to get these Christians in the door, but this gospel is something that envelops their entire life and carries them through life. It is something that they are to hold on to, to cling to, to stand in, and by doing so, they are being saved through this gospel. You see, the Christian gospels, not just one thing that's heard at one time, believed upon, and then forgotten. The Christian gospel is something that's continually believed upon day after day, all through life as we continue to recognize us being saved from our sin. And so Paul didn't want them to forget this gospel. They've already heard it. But he says, I want to remind you of that gospel again. Notice also that this is not just an academic dissertation about the gospel. He addresses them as brothers. I would remind you, brothers. This is a way for for the the early Christian writers to address the entire church. Today we'd say, brothers and sisters. 
He reminds them that they are tied together as like a family in Christ. And so as a, as a fellow brother in Christ, he's reminding them of these great truths. And it's then after saying that you must continue to believe these things, you must continue to hold fast to this word, he reminds them of what it is that he actually delivered. What is it that he preached? What is the substance of that good news? And that's where he is going to launch into in verse 3. And particularly in verses 3 through 20, we're going to see two reasons why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge of our hope. Verses 3 through 20, two reasons the resurrection of Christ from the grave is the hinge of the Christian's hope. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. And so the first reason, the resurrection is the hinge of Christian hope because the resurrection is a historical reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical reality, and we see this in verses 3 through 11. Verses 3 through 11. Now, you know, one of the ways that the resurrection has been attacked in recent years, last few hundred years, is by denying that it ever took place, that it's not a real event, that it was the figment of the disciples' imagination created in order to help this Christian community get off the ground. The historicity of it is flatly rejected. And yet Paul makes it clear here that he is a faithful messenger of the truths of the gospel. He says, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, he's saying, I'm being a faithful ambassador here. Listen, I'm just handing off what I have already been given. It's been delivered to me, and I'm now handing it off to you. He's saying, I'm being faithful in this task. It's like an ambassador from the U.S. going to Great Britain with a message on behalf of the president. He must deliver that message carefully and truthfully to be a good ambassador, receiving the message and delivering the message with great care. Otherwise, he's failed as an ambassador. Paul here is saying he's ambassador for Christ. He's received that message, and he's now delivering it with the utmost accuracy. Notice what he says about the importance of this message. He's not delivering some small thing. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's not going farther down the list to give you unimportant things. He's giving you the very pinnacle, the very first thing of first importance. The gospel is the top of the list for what he wants to deliver to these people. And this is a word for us too. That there is nothing more important for us to consider today in our lives in 2021 than the gospel. This is still of first importance for every person everywhere. That we would grapple with the truths of this gospel. Now we need to look at what is included in this important message. And he lists four essential components of this message Particularly here, there's four historical actions that Paul recounts in the delivering of his message. Look at verse 3, the first one. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The first historical action that he recounts as part of his gospel is that Christ died. The death of Christ. The death of Jesus of Nazareth is in a fact attested by all four gospel writers. The whole Passion Week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, is detailed greatly. And here we are told who is central to the Christian message. 
What, who is at the center point of the gospel? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who did all these actions that Paul is going to recount, these four actions. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ. You cannot look anywhere else. He is the one whom Paul preached, and it's the events of his life that provide the good news for you and I today. This Jesus, Paul says, actually and truly died. He did not fall asleep. He did not simply pass out. He experienced the complete cessation of physical life. When did he die? He died outside Jerusalem in around 33 AD. He was nailed to a Roman cross and was crucified. He died about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And this historical fact is attested not only in the New Testament all over the place, but even secular sources noted as well, such as Tacitus in AD 116. And notice that his death was according to the Scriptures. Paul makes a note of that. For Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, the death of the Son of God was long foretold. This was something that, that the prophets knew was coming. The prophet Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would bear the iniquity of his people and that his suffering would bring healing. And therefore, Christ's crucifixion was not a disruption of God's plan, but a fulfillment of it. But see, Jesus did not die like any other human. He died as a substitute. Paul says Christ died for our sins. And if you're with us on Friday night, Pastor Luke helped us reflect more richly on what that meant. That he was our substitute for us. I want you to notice that Paul includes himself here. He includes all the Christian community that Christ died for our sins, not just yours, not just certain individuals. He says for ours and he includes himself in this. And we can say this too today if we believe that Christ was our substitute, that he died for our sins as well. Now, why did Jesus have to do this? Why did Jesus die for our sins? Well, because death is required because of our sins. The Bible's clear in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. What we are owed, what is our due because of our sin against a holy and righteous God is death. And not just the cessation of physical life and then going into uh, non-existence, but it is eternal death, the Bible calls it, or the second death, a punishment that awaits us on the other side of the grave. That is what we truly deserve and we should truly fear. This is punishment in hell forever for our sins. You see, our sins condemn us, our sins defile us, and our sins will ultimately destroy us. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, I thought you said this was good news. <laughs> I, I thought this was the gospel of good news. But see, we have to hear the bad news before we can accept the good news. In the same way that we have to hear the diagnosis of a deadly disease before we can hear and appreciate that an antidote has been found, so we need to hear that we are lost in our sins before we can appreciate and, and love the fact that a Savior has taken those sins upon himself. We must come to grips with the truth of our predicament, with the judgment that we face before we will ever see Christ as glorious and as the necessary substitute for us. Paul says, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Friends, Jesus paid the penalty in full for our sins. There's nothing left for us to pay. There's not a little bit of punishment awaiting us on the other side of the grave. Jesus paid it all. It is finished, he said. And therefore, there is nothing left. By placing our faith in him, the crucified one, we are forgiven. So the first historical event that Paul lays out here as part of his good news is that Christ died. The second historical event is that Christ was buried. Look at verse 4, that he was buried. Now this too is a historical fact that can easily be overlooked, but it needn't be. You see, that's a fact that Jesus was buried. And what that means is that he was truly dead. He was truly dead. He didn't just die and then come back to life within 10 minutes. He was buried. This gives validity to the claim that Jesus had died. If he was never buried, there could be legitimate questions of whether he had actually died. But burial in the ground showed the certainty of his death. Again, the gospel writers record his burial. One example is Luke 23. It says, There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It's a simple event, but recorded for us to know that Jesus Christ was buried and therefore truly died. So that's the second historical event that we need to, that Paul records for us. He was died, Christ died, Christ was buried. Third historical event is the end of verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this is the event that, Christ, that Paul ends up focusing on the rest of the chapter. But he's saying here that after Christ died, after he was buried, he was raised alive again according to the scriptures. And again, he, he says that a second time, right? That this is according to the scriptures. This was according to God's plan. Passages like Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, indicated that the Messiah would not see corruption and would not stay in the grave. God knew what he was going to do with his Messiah, and he brought it about in time, in space, and in history. But the point that we need to see about the resurrection this morning is that it was a historical fact. And this historical fact is central to the gospel. It's of first importance that Jesus rose from the grave. Now you'll remember that during Jesus' ministry, he brought several people back from the grave. In fact, just a few weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son back to life and gave him back to his mother. You may be familiar with the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, how Jesus called out to Lazarus and he came forth from the grave to walk again. These are phenomenal examples of Jesus' power over death, but there's a marked difference between those miracles Jesus performed and what Jesus himself went through in his resurrection. Because you see, these people he brought back to life, they eventually died again. And when they came back to life, their body was the same body dealing with corruption as previously. Hence, they died again. 
But with Jesus, it was different. Jesus came back to life in a glorified body, never to face that corruption again, never to go through that process of death again. His his body was different. He could walk through walls, for example, we see in the accounts. This is a new body, a different body, the sign of the new creation. It's interesting that even at the time of the event, when Jesus was raised from the dead, there were people that doubted his resurrection. They tried to explain it away. In Matthew 28, we read that while the women were leaving the tomb, it says, Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and, uh, and stole, away, uh, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Ever since the very beginning, there have been efforts to try to explain away the resurrection. And that has happened today as well, as I mentioned earlier. But the truth remains that no body has been recovered, nor co- no corpse has been shown. On top of this, there were many people that witnessed him after he had been raised. And this is where Paul goes to next. There was witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Look at verse 5 is the fourth historical event about this gospel, this good news. Look at verse 5. It says, And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, and though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Here, Paul carefully lays out the order of the witnesses to Christ's resurrection. Now, you have to remember that this was a time in which uh, there was no video. So you, you couldn't, uh, you know, we're so used to today, if an event happens, we're wondering if someone whipped out their phone and recorded it to take place, and we don't really believe it until we see it with a video with our own eyes, right? Did you see the video? Yeah, I saw it. Well, there was no video in this time, obviously, and so uh, in, in these days before video could be captured, you had to trust witnesses. You had to trust eyewitness accounts, and particularly you needed more than one. You needed two witnesses to be able to verify that something took place. And if you notice from the list here, there's more than two, right? In fact, there's even more than 500 at one time. Paul wants to lay out the case that Jesus showed himself in his resurrected body to more than just one person, and even more than just his disciples. He showed himself to many people. And the point in listing all these witnesses is so that these people who were reading this letter could even go hunt down these witnesses and hear with their own ears their resurrection, their account of seeing Jesus. That is how you can verify in the first century. You get the names and you go knock on their door. And that's the very reason Paul lists all these people. These people receiving this letter could go knock on the door of most of these people. He said some of the 500 had already fallen asleep, had already died. But the vast majority of the people that saw Jesus after his resurrection were still living and could, could 
verify what they saw. He mentions Cephas first, another name for Peter. He mentions the twelve. We know that that was, John 20 says, without Thomas, and then Thomas joined later in John 20. Then he mentions more than 500 at one time. We don't know exactly when this took place, but it's sweet to hear that there were, there were 500 brothers. At the end of Jesus' ministry, there were 500 who trusted in Jesus and that were there gathering to, to hear him and to see him. Again, Paul notes that some of them had already passed away. Then he mentions James. James is probably Peter's brother, or sorry, Jesus' brother, who would later become a leader in the church in Jerusalem, Acts 15 and Galatians 2, verse 9. And then he mentions all the apostles, which I believe refers to Jesus' appearance before the ascension. Acts chapter 1, he appeared to them all, and then he was raised into heaven. And then, ver then lastly, he said to Paul, verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, we didn't plan this, but Seth already mentioned the time that Jesus appeared to Paul. When he, formerly his name was Saul, and he's on the road to Damascus about to persecute Christians in that city, and Jesus knocks him off his horse with his glory, uh, displays himself, and he says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. And Paul makes it clear here that no one else has seen the risen Lord. He was the last one. After he saw Jesus, the appearance is ended. That's where he says, last of all, verse 8. Paul goes on to describe him and the apostles' ministry in verses 10 in verse 10, but he gets to his point in verse 11. He says, whether then it was I, Paul, or they, the other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. So we preach and so we believed. In other words, he's saying this. Listen, it doesn't matter who you heard this message from. If you heard it from the other apostles or you heard it from me, it's the same message, and it's the message that you placed your faith in, that you believed in, and it's these four facts about the gospel. This is the sum content of the gospel message, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and he appeared to many. That is the message we still proclaim today as historical fact. This is the historical truths that we preach, that we share, and that we believe. So it's upon these facts of the, that the gospel entirely rests upon and their historical realities. And so therefore, these facts must be believed. So the first reason that the resurrection is the hinge of Christian hope is because the resurrection is a historical reality. But the second reason we're going to look at this morning for why the resurrection is the hinge of Christian hope is because the resurrection is a spiritual necessity. The resurrection is a spiritual necessity. What I mean by that is that Paul shows that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential in the Christian gospel. If there's no resurrection, then all the blessings that are promised in the gospel and through Jesus do not exist. 
And we see this in verses 12 through 20. Verses 12 through 20. In these verses, the issue Paul addresses is not so much people that are wondering, did Jesus really rise from the dead? The people who are reading this already believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But they're questioning whether those who believe in Jesus will one day be resurrected themselves. So when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, he's talking about the future resurrection for for everyone else besides Jesus. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? How can you say that no one else is going to get resurrected when Jesus has, we've just proclaimed Jesus as resurrected? Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, if what you're saying is true, guys, that there really is no resurrection, he carries out that to the logical conclusion. He says, then not even Christ has been raised. Then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, our resurrection and Jesus' resurrection is connected. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. What Jesus did 2,000 years ago and coming back to life is something that connects to our resurrection as well. You can't have the one without the other. These people were trying to separate. Oh, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. But, you know, people, they're not going to come back to life anytime. They're just going to simply uh, die, and that's it. And Paul says you can't have it that way. Now, the question is, why would the Corinthians be even doubting this? Why would they have an issue with, if they, have a, if they are okay with Jesus rising from the dead, why do they have a problem with people, other people rising from the dead? Well, it's because of Greek philosophy. And again, we're in the Greek port town of Corinth. The Greeks taught a philosophy called dualism, which taught that the spiritual world was good, the physical world was bad, and it was evil and imperfect. And therefore, the culture that these believers were in disdained the physical body. They disdained anything physical that you could touch and see. And so their mission in life was to shed and get rid of the physical and believing that the the great blissful eternity that we're all attaining to is a spiritual one disembodied. That we're separating from our bodies, getting away from this filthy, evil, physical stuff and going to just the spiritual. And so the people that were saved, were, were they weren't... They were trying to escape the body. They didn't want to return to it. And yet that's the doctrine of the resurrection. says that when we die in a future day, we're going to be resurrected with new glorified flesh and blood. And they go, ugh, we're going to be resurrected and come back into a body? I don't want that. And so these, these believers were trying to, I believe, have it both ways. They were trying to synchronize their faith about Christ and the values of their culture and try to make it work. Paul's saying, no, it doesn't work at all. It's impossible. So Jesus, Paul says here, if you deny a future resurrection for believers, you also have to deny the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel is gutted. If you deny the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel is gutted. And so everything hinges upon this resurrection. The resurrection is absolutely necessary if there's to be any spiritual benefit from Christ. And so here in these verses, uh, particularly verses uh, 14 through 20, I want to see four things that would be lost if the resurrection didn't happen. 
Four things that would be lost if the resurrection didn't happen. Why is the resurrection such a necessity? Because these four things would be lost. And Christianity would be a bunch of nonsense. But more than that, life on this earth would be pointless and absolutely hopeless. First thing that would be lost if the resurrection didn't happen, Paul says, verse 14, is we'd have no message or ministry. No message or ministry. Verse 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. Everything that we are doing, us traveling the world, trying to tell people about this gospel, would be a bunch of hot air. He's saying, if Christ is still in the tomb outside Jerusalem, rotting in the ground, then the content of my preaching is nothing but empty words, and I, with all the other apostles and preachers, am a charlatan. If Jesus died never to rise, then we have no gospel message to preach. We have nothing to do. We simply go home and be done. There's no good news. There's no reason for anyone to listen to us. We have no ministry if Christ is still dead. Everything about ministry and mission falls apart and dissolves if Christ has not been raised. In fact, he says in verse 15, that if Christ is still dead, then he has been found misrepresenting God. That they are not accurate and true messengers, but rather, worst of all, they're imposters. They're simply putting on a show. They're doing it for people's amusement. You cannot deny the resurrection of Jesus and still claim to hold to a Christian religion. You cannot deny the resurrection of Jesus and still claim to hold to Christian religion because there's no ministry or message without it. And yet there are people today that would claim the name of Christian in some way and talk about Jesus in some way and yet deny the veracity of the resurrection of Christ along with a number of other things in the Bible. But Paul makes it clear here, you can't do that. There is no preaching there is no ministry. It's all in vain if you deny the resurrection. So if Jesus is still dead, if his bones have since dissolved into and rotted into the ground there in Israel, then we have no message or ministry. Secondly, the second thing we'd lose if there's no resurrection is we'd have no faith. We'd have no faith, Paul says. Look in verse 14. He says, not only is our preaching in vain, but if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And then look at verse 17. He says it again. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is futile. Our faith as Christians is placing in the truth of the word of God that has been declared to us. We believe in what God has said. We place our faith upon that. It is the foundation. It is the object of our faith is Christ and what has been declared to us. But Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then all of that dissolves. The foundation upon which we stand disintegrates. And we have nothing. It's pointless. Faith is the essence of Christianity. For us to be Christians means that we are believers, right? Right? 
the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Faith is the essence of salvation. But if Jesus was still dead, then there's nothing to believe in because Jesus went the same way as every single other human. He was a man who died like everyone else in history. He taught some great things, but he doesn't offer anything beyond the grave. You see, contrary to popular explanation of religious belief, faith is not just a subjective experience. Oh, I've got faith, and it makes me feel good, and I just kind of live with that, and, and it carries me through life. No, faith is, is only as strong as the object that it rests upon. Faith is only as strong as that which we are trusting in. Are we trusting in ourselves? Are we trusting in some sort of enlightenment that we've gotten somewhere? Or are we truly trusting in revealed truth from the living God? And Christianity claims this is the word of God. This is the truth for all of humanity that each one of us must repent of our sins and believe upon. And so faith is based upon an objective reality. It is, it's something that's happened outside of me, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If those events didn't take place, then our faith is futile. It's vain. It's nothing. It turns into wind. But thirdly, the third thing that we would lose if the resurrection didn't happen is we'd have no forgiveness. He starts continuing to, to pierce it even deeper. We'd have no forgiveness. Look in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. He says that if Jesus has not been raised, then each one of us still bears the guilt and the weight of our sins. The Bible is very clear that the condition of all mankind, every single person since Adam and Eve onward, has been one of being lost in their sins. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that we're by nature children of wrath. See, the Bible says that humanity is in a prison that he can't escape. We can't get out of the prison of our sins on our own. We recognize our guilt before a holy God. We've done things that's transgressed his laws. We've done things that, that are wrong and we know it. And we felt the burden of our iniquities. We know that we're guilty, but we can't save ourselves. And so for those who have heard about Christ, we've fled to him for refuge. Only in him can we find the relief. Only in him does he take the burden off of us and are our sins totally forgiven and is our debt totally paid so that one day we can stand before our creator and know that we'll be guiltless. Not because our record is guiltless in any sort of way, but because we've trusted in Jesus who's paid for all of our sins upon the cross and his record is then applied to us. And so when our list of sins is rolled out before our creator, there's a big stamp on us that's paid in full, paid for by the blood of Christ. But if Jesus wasn't, hasn't been raised, then we're still stuck in that prison. There's no hope. And we will face our creator on judgment day. And that list of sins will be rolled out and we will have to pay for every single one of those because we are deserving of paying for those. But God has sent his son. He's demonstrated his love toward us. 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to, to, to turn to him, for us to be good people, and then he sent his son. No, we were still sinners, and then he sent his son. And that displays before all of history the great love of God for every single sinner. God has sent his son. We only need to look upon his great love, look upon his great mercy, and recognize he's provided a way out of this prison of sin provided a way out of the judgment that we deserve. If Jesus had not been raised, we would have none of this. Why? Because the resurrection is the guarantee that Jesus, his sacrifice had been fully accepted. We can say Jesus died on the cross. We can say that he was buried and we say, oh, he paid it all, it's finished. But if he never came back to life again, how do we know it was accepted? How do we know it's going to bring transformation for us? Paul says in Romans 4, 25, that he was delivered up, that's to the cross, for our trespasses, our sins, and he was raised for our justification. Our debt is cleared because he has been raised. You see, without the resurrection, we don't have any justification. Without the resurrection, our debt and our record still stands. There's no forgiveness. Finally, the fourth thing that we would not have, that we would lose, if Christ had not been raised, is we would have no future. Particularly, we'd have no future life. Paul says, verse 18 and 19, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have already died, he's saying, euphemistically, have perished. They've perished. In other words, if Jesus has not been raised, then Christians who have already died, and by implication, all those who have died since our day, or since that day, up until this day, have perished. They're still in the grave, and that is the end of the story. The word perished here in verse 18 is the same word that's perished in the verse John 3.16, a verse many of you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, what? Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. With Jesus, no perishing. But if Jesus hasn't been raised, then we do perish. And all hope is lost. Perishing here does not just mean that we cease to exist the Bible doesn't anywhere teach annihilationism that anybody, after they die, just simply goes into nothingness and ceases to exist. The Bible teaches that there is a future after death for both the saved and the unsaved, for those who believe and those who do not believe. Bible commentator Simon Kistemaker explains it this way. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then God condemns people to everlasting punishment because of their sins they never enter heaven to be in God's presence. And last, their bodies remain forever in the grave. Cut off from the living God, they have perished. Friends, this is the consequence of no resurrection. There's no eternal life. And therefore, the Christian hope is completely destroyed. There's no hope in the future if Christ is still in the grave. There is no hope of heaven. There is no hope of a blissful eternity. And therefore, Paul says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if there is no future life, then we are of all people most to be pitied because we're placing our hope in a pipe dream. 
We're placing it on, on a fantasy, a figment of our imagination just to make us feel better. But it is, it is, it is an absolute lie. An absolute lie. Without the resurrection, Christianity falls apart. But look at verse 20. Paul's going through all this hypothetical negativity. He returns to certainty and truth in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Hear that loud and clear this morning, folks, that Jesus Christ is not rotting in a grave in Israel. He has come back to life, and he has ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He appeared to many, as the passage describes, and he is alive today. He is alive today, and he awaits the day when he will return. And you see, when he returns, there will be two resurrections. There will be a resurrection unto death and a resurrection unto life. The Bible is clear that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. One resurrection should strike fear in all those who are still holding on to their sin and have not run to Jesus for rescue. The other resurrection gives the church hope to face anything this world throws our way. Paul says that Jesus was the first fruits. That means he was the down payment. He was the initial installment. He raised, therefore, putting on display for us to see that one day we too will be raised. It's the promise that resurrection is coming for all those who trust in Jesus. He's only the first fruits. The rest of it's coming later. It's coming, that resurrection's coming when he returns. You see, our future is not souls floating around the clouds somewhere, but our future is walking in bodies upon a renewed earth. Therefore, a resurrection must happen. The resurrection for Jesus happened, which means that the resurrection for us in Christ will happen too. And so, the claims of this passage and the claims of the Bible present significant things for us to realize today. If you're here listening in person, or maybe you're at home watching, these are truths that you must grapple with. Have you repented of your sins and trusted in the Jesus who historically died, was buried, and rose again and appeared to many? Have you trusted in him? If you have not repented of your sins, if you have not turned to him in faith, believing that his sacrifice was on your behalf, then you are still in your sins, Paul says. And there awaits a future day of judgment. But, the, but behold the great love of God, that while you were still a sinner rejecting him and closing your heart to him, Christ died so that we could place our faith in him and find forgiveness forevermore. He is the only place for sinners to go and find safety and salvation from the judgment we deserve. I encourage you, don't, don't wait another day. If God is working on your heart, placing guilt and, and shame upon your heart that you know that you have sinned against him, do not stuff those. That is the, the feelings of shame is God's gift to you to recognize that you stand under guilt by the eternal law of God. And to recognize that and to feel that and, that and that if you don't deal with that today, you're going to have to deal with it on a future day and then it will be too late. You see, our guilt before God is an objective truth whether you feel it or not. But God in his love offers forgiveness to all those who would come to him. 
And today is a day in which he's offering his grace and his love to you for you to, to turn today. He has been patient with you throughout your life, has he not? All those years that you've rejected him, all those years that, that you think that you've been the master of your destiny, that you know what truth is and you're gonna live the life the way you want to live it. He's been patient with you to bring you to today, that you might hear the good news that there is a way out of the prison of sin. And that is through Jesus Christ, his son. Folks, this passage gives us two big reasons that the resurrection is the hinge of our hope. It's because it's a historical reality and because it's a spiritual necessity. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. Praise be to God that Jesus has been raised. He is our only hope in life and death. We may be pitied by the world. We may be hated and persecuted by the world, but we have a hope that cannot die. We have a hope that can persevere any storm or trial because the greatest enemy the devil has, has is death, and death has been conquered by our powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's bow in prayer, and then we're going to close with a song. Father, we thank you for this word that Jesus Christ has indeed been raised Oh, Father, we live in an age and a world that does not want to shine a light upon the resurrection of Christ. The hope of Easter is, is buried, is mocked. And yet, Father, this is the only hope for all of humanity. I pray, oh God, that you would please solidify in our hearts the truth of the historical fact of what Jesus did and we, may we recognize our need to believe and trust in him and find life beyond the grave. We praise you, O oh Jesus, because you are the mighty, resurrected Savior and the Lord who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We worship you this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.